and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping this week on Thursday, July 29th at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined via video conference by Mary Ellen McIntyre of CQ Roll Call. Hi, everyone. Anna Edney of Bloomberg News. Hello. And my KHN colleague, Roshana Prada. Hi, Julie. After the news, we'll have the latest Bill of the Month interview with Samantha Young. It's about an Olympic-level athlete with an Olympic-sized medical bill, but plenty to talk about before that, so let's get to it. So I guess we need to start with COVID again this week because it's back to being the top health story and maybe the top news story in the country. Apparently, our hot vac summer is becoming our hot COVID summer. Thank you very much, Delta variant. Clearly, we have a communications challenge here. The new version of the virus doesn't behave the same way as earlier versions. So things we thought we had learned, that you're safe outside, that you're pretty safe if you're exposed to someone only for a few minutes, and you're completely protected if you're vaccinated, aren't necessarily true anymore. But I spent some time with right-wing TV this week, and what we're hearing is that, see, the scientists were all wrong. So how big a challenge is that communications effort going to be to overcome? Well, I think the people that you're talking about that are saying the scientists just flip-flop all the time, and they're the ones that haven't really believed them all along in in the first place. Um, You know, that's kind of the same group that largely isn't uh, getting vaccines and things um, and and hasn't probably been as careful um, because you could say exactly what they're saying now in the beginning with Fauci and masks. And it is a frustrating issue, totally understandable, um, but also if if you drill down on it, like the science is changing, the virus is changing, the scientists have to adapt to that. But I think the people who are having issues with that are the ones who probably weren't as careful in the first place. I saw somebody tweet this morning. It's like, back in January, the experts said I should wear a parka and now they say I should wear a t-shirt. What's wrong with them? <laughs> That's really good. <laughs> this is, I mean, this is kind of to Anna's point, like, you know, where the surges are being driven in areas where there's a high population of unvaccinated people as well. Um, so, you know, these are people who, you know, have, have chosen at this point not to get vaccinated for the most part and is really what's driving the surge. And I, I think that there's been, you know, kind of a missed opportunity to talk about like, it was always if enough people get vaccinated, it's not just you, like the more unvaccinated people, the more likely it is for mutations and new variants to, um, you know, emerge and come through. So I think that that's also, you know, for the most part, you know, we're still hearing people who are vaccinated are safe. Yes, this new variant is more dangerous and it's more, you're more likely to, you know, maybe be able to transmit it and still kind of learning about some of the science of this. But it does seem like the scientists really are still learning so much about the Delta variant itself. I think one thing that I found really interesting too is looking at the CDC, you know, this week put out a new community transmission map and along with their new guidance saying, if you are in an area with high spread, you should be wearing masks indoors, even if you are vaccinated. Um, Just culturally speaking, I mean, if you look at the map, really the mid-Atlantic starting with sort of the second, the northern half of Virginia up into New England and then sort of the upper Midwestern Plains states, um, at least speaking, we're all based in Washington. People here, we have good vaccination, but also I, I think are more likely to have 
still wear masks, certainly indoors in certain locations. It's just anecdotal based on my own experience, you know, in my own neighborhood and just in the in the area. But I wonder too, if people, why is spread lower there? It might be because people are just more likely to wear masks inside and that's really helping things also. Whereas in other parts of the country, people are sort of said to heck with masks and I'm not going to wear them anywhere. Certainly not after being vaccinated. Here, my anecdote is here in highly vaccinated Montgomery County. I was on jury duty this week. And, you know, you're in an assigned seat in a room with, you know, 150 other people. This is sort of the juror lounge before you're sent off to the courtrooms. And I would say about a quarter of the people were wearing masks. I was one of them, but I was really uncomfortable. I mean, I think I wouldn't have been two weeks ago. I think just this sort of the the word about the Delta variant has not gotten out yet. I think for a while we saw people you know, hanging on to their masks because it was sort of weird to take them off. And I feel like in the last couple of weeks, a lot of people have taken them off. And now it feels a little weird to put them back on. Um, I actually wore my mask at a dog show also this week where they were checking vaccine cards. You were not allowed to be maskless unless you showed your vaccine card. And yeah, and so most people weren't wearing masks. And I did get a few strange looks. And I'm like, you know, there's a lot of people here. They're running and breathing hard. It was an agility trial. And I'm just going to wear a mask because it's going to take a while for that to come back. But before that, I mean, we're seeing a blossoming of vaccine mandates and requirements. First workers at the VA, then California state employees, New York City employees, and reportedly, as of later today, all federal employees will have to either be vaccinated or be frequently tested. We had been told earlier that we weren't going to see these mandates until the FDA gave full approval to the vaccines rather than the emergency authorization they're operating under now. What happened? I mean, is this just Delta has sort of forced everybody's hand on this? Delta certainly is playing, it has a big influence in this. And also, um, depending on who you talk to, the FDA is moving fairly slowly, at least, you know, they're not moving slowly for the FDA. Let's like, to be fair, they're doing all the things they're supposed to do and looking at all the data, but people really wanted that approval, I think, sooner and, and were able to kind of hide behind that for a little bit. But now with Delta, with low vaccination rates in some places, and people really wanting, at least some companies seem to really want their workers back in the office. They were set on doing it. They wanted it by, you know, August, September. I don't think they're able to safely do that. They could probably get even more pushback now. And so if they're at least looking at these vaccine mandates, then there's a little bit pressure um, off of off of management as far as um, people being concerned to come back. I feel like we we tried the carrot, the, you know, various lotteries and gift cards and, you know, all kinds of stuff. Now they're trying the stick. Is the stick going to work better? I guess we'll see. But, you know, clearly in a lot of places, the carrot wasn't working. And I think, you know, a lot of people were like, it doesn't seem like there's any one thing that's going to convince these people who don't want the vaccine and are saying they're not going to get it. So trying something else, I think, you know, the federal government coming out certainly does give you know, more cover to private companies who, you know, might now say, okay, I feel more confident having this requirement of vaccinations to come back into the office. So yeah, we'll see what happens. This is definitely, you know, going to be really controversial, um, you know, among some people. Um, At the same time, um, you know, even, you know, I talked to Senator Bill Cassidy this week about this, and he sort of noted, like, particularly for healthcare workers, the idea of a vaccine mandate is not a new concept. Um, so Cassidy, who's a doctor, for yeah, those who exactly. don't remember. Like his point was, 
we get vaccinations for a lot of things, including the flu and schools require vaccinations. So these are not like a wild concept in general. It's just that this is so new. It's not fully approved by the FDA. So we'll see. And and I think too, like, let's be clear for a lot of like for the federal government and for some of these companies, it's not like a mandate, get the vaccine or don't come in. They're, people who don't want it are going to be subject to frequent testing, but they don't have to get the shot or not work again. So there are options. It, it's a light stick. Yeah, this was um, but this was clearly something that Biden did not want to do. Right. You know, the concern about the quote unquote heavy hand of government. There's already so much, you know, rhetoric around about government forcing. I mean, the the, the House of Representatives this week, you know, after the, the office of the attending physician recommended put back its mask mandate and some of the Republicans, you know, threw a fit. It's like, well, why should we wear masks if the vaccines work? And if the vaccines work, then we shouldn't have to wear masks. And that, you know, that's the kind of thing that we're seeing. So I know the Biden administration was really reluctant to do this, but I guess they feel like their hand was forced here? I think so. I mean, I'm not as clear on their decision-making process behind putting the masks back, say, in like with Congress or in the White House, but I talked to a lot of superintendents, school board members, things like that, and there are some that just aren't going to be able to do it um, in their states either. There's no political will or already they've been told they can't do it with masks, but they wanted more from the CDC. Things were like we're clearly going an uncomfortable way with Delta. And the only way to really keep kids, most of who are not vaccinated or can't even be vaccinated in classes, is to have masks on. And so in a way, there's also some modeling from adults on down that we just kind of have to do this right now to keep everything open. Yeah. And that's and I'm surprised that it's not being messaged that way. It's like, you know, if you don't want to wear a mask, then we're going to end up with a shutdown again. I mean, we're seeing that in a lot of places. I guess Australia is having its first shutdowns. And and things are not going well there. It's, it, it make, in some ways, it makes me feel better. It's not just that, you know, Americans are the people who don't seem to understand basic science and basic public health. The world is tired of this, and a lot of people are rebelling. Um, but my KHN colleague, Lauren Weber, who lives in hard-hit Missouri, pointed out on Twitter yesterday that it's not really accurate to call this a pandemic of the unvaccinated, even though the vast majority of people in hospitals with serious illness are unvaccinated. But even if you're not sick, with COVID, if your local health system is overrun with COVID patients, you're in danger if you need care for a different health emergency. If you get hit by a car, you have a heart attack. So I wonder, should vaccinated people be more concerned than they already are? And maybe vaccinated people could be doing more to get the unvaccinated to step up. I do think one of the things that has probably proved the most successful more than even politicians and figureheads saying, you know, I got the vaccine. I think recently we've seen Senator Mitch McConnell is pouring campaign money into funding pro-vaccine ads. Uh, we obviously know his history with, with polio. And I think also what I found interesting is earlier this week in Arkansas, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who is running for governor of that state, um, wrote a, I think, an op-ed saying, well, here's why I got vaccinated. I'll be interested to see if that really moves the needle, but really trusted relatives, family members uh, has always helped get people vaccinated, even people who are not being vaccinated, let's say for it's not only political reasons or because they're anti-government, but they just have a lot of questions or are hesitant. 
And I've seen, you know, examples relatively recently of even that uh, working. And then the second thing, of course, is the more really sad and terrible one. But if you know someone who's gotten horribly sick or has died from this virus, you are much more likely to take precautions and get a vaccine. And so I do think we are seeing vaccinations, of course, increase a bit, not nearly where they were uh, a few months ago, but we're seeing the rate increase as we see Delta sort of circulating in the in the Midwest, especially. I would say we're seeing it increase in places where it really needs to increase. We're seeing it increase in some of these really hard hit states, because I think, as you say, Rashida, people are actually starting to see people who had not before seeing people who are getting sick and younger people are getting sick with Delta. And so I think you get sort of that age cohort. It's like, oh, wow, I really might be in danger. It's not just my grandma who could get get really sick from this. I could get really sick from this. Um, so it's sort of not the carrot nor the stick. That it's the, it's the people around me actually getting sick. All right. Well, speaking of Missouri, earlier this summer, we talked about how Missouri wasn't going to expand Medicaid despite a successful ballot measure last August. In fact, it was a year ago next week approving the expansion. The Republican legislature refused to fund the state's not very big share of the program. And the Republican governor said without the funding, he wasn't going to do it. Well, it seems that was not the last word. The Missouri State Supreme Court disagrees. In a surprising ruling last week, the court unanimously ruled that the expansion has to go forward, although it's still up to the legislature how to fund it. We're talking about 275,000 people here potentially gaining health coverage. I'm wondering if this could give a boost to efforts here in Washington to find a way to cover the remaining people in the rest of the dozen states that have not expanded the program since the Supreme Court made it voluntary in 2012. Um, it, it, it if, if it really happens in Missouri, can we expect it to maybe happen in some of these other states or maybe get put into a the second half of this reconciliation bill that Congress is starting to talk about? Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of what Congress is looking to do and what Democrats on the Hill are looking to do, I'm sure this is an added push. I'm sure they are, you know, celebrating this and still continuing to look into it. I don't think that this necessarily changes the dynamic a ton. I think that there's a lot of different health priorities. This is a top one for a lot of people and is definitely in the mix to be included in that reconciliation package that, especially now that an infrastructure deal seems to be moving forward in the Senate, is probably going to start to get a lot more attention. But I think there's still so many different health priorities that we'll have to see sort of what ends up in that final package once these negotiations really get started and they're moving forward with them. Yeah, we should point out that the the bipartisan plan, or the BIF, as it's called here in Washington, is actually moving. The Senate actually, you know, they, they there was a deal, and it's on the Senate floor, and they got it up, and it's expected now to pass sometime next week, which will open the door to the next part of it, as as Mel says, with the, you know, with what we expect to be an, an awful lot of health provisions. How tenuous is this? I mean, it looks like it's all now sort of starting to fall into place? It seems to be, yeah. We, of course, don't have final bill text just yet, but they, you know, announced the agreement yesterday. They got a big vote to on the procedural vote to sort of get on the debate for the bill last night, which they had not previously gotten. So we'll see. I think that there's still probably a few things that might fall apart and come together, but it seems to be moving forward. And then the Senate is going to take up probably next week the budget resolution before they get out of town for August recess as soon as next week. So yeah, I know. And I guess and I guess it looks like August recess is going to happen. There was some question about whether they would stick around and, and try to work on this, which is always the threat 
and almost never happens. I would say that it never happens, but actually Congress did stay, I think it was in 1994, when they were working on the Clinton health plan, they actually canceled most of the August recess and stuck around and ended up with nothing to show for it. So I don't think they've done it since. Yeah, it definitely seemed at the beginning of this week that, you know, maybe maybe the Senate would be in an extra week. But um, particularly if they do end up working through the weekend, which Senator Schumer has talked about, maybe they won't end up staying that extra week. Well, we'll see. It's always an encouragement to get stuff done, because unlike a lot of the other district work periods where they really do go home and work, the August recess really is a recess for a lot of these members. It's when they go on vacation with their families and at, at least slow down. So um, I'm assuming that that will happen. So this week marked the 31st first anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act, which I actually covered way back when it passed. President Biden hosted a ceremony at the White House where he re-emphasized his support for the law that grants broad civil rights to those with disabilities, as well as those perceived to have disabilities. Adding to that message, the Department of Health and Human Services issued guidance suggesting that people with long COVID might be able to qualify as having a disability, which makes me wonder, could the pandemic leave us with a much larger pool of people with disabilities and what might that mean for, you know, society's uh, ability to deal with and make accommodations for people with disabilities, which is what the ADA was all about? It'll be interesting to see how long COVID sort of qualifies, what conditions that end up being seen as, as a disability and how many people have them, things like that. I think that those kind of details um, maybe come first on and what this impact is, how many how many people um, it might impact or help. And but I think certainly it's helpful in general raising the issue. You see a lot more talk about about disability, um, people being more open with it and the idea of what it is being much broader and and different than maybe we thought of in the past, given COVID is so front of mind. Um, But I, I do think the test in the beginning will be who and how people are able to claim disability for long COVID. I know one of the difficult things with the AD and and there was a reason that that it was written so that it's not just people with disabilities, but people who are perceived as being disabled. Um, you know, it's one thing to talk about curb cuts. You know, it's easier to see people with sort of obvious physical, you know, uh, difficulties. But it's harder to see people who, you know, who have ailments that are not obvious to the eye. Um, and I think that was sort of the the idea here. And I just, you know, I know there's a lot of frustration this week from people in the disability community. About 35 years on, there's still an awful lot of the ADA that's not being enforced or that's not being enforced well. Um, and, you know, it, it was sort of, it was a promise that was made, you know, uh, like the Civil Rights Act of 1964. It was a promise that was made that has not been fully realized. And obviously, you know, unlike, you know, race or, or sex, you, you can you can change your, your disability status. And I'm just wondering if, you know, maybe there there will be redoubled efforts to, to actually better enforce the, the ADA. All right. Well, while we're talking about the ADA, Anna, your extra credit this week is directly related to it. So why don't you go ahead and do that now? Yeah, um, so I I just wanted to highlight an obituary in the New York Times for Erin Gilmer. She was a disability rights activist. She also was a lawyer, a consultant to different healthcare companies and things like that, including people with disabilities and how to best treat their healthcare issues. She had a host of issues herself. She was she was thirty eight. Um, she died by suicide and wasn't able to to handle the pain of a lot of her ailments any longer. And also, I know this is this is kind of heavy, but I, I think I, I wanted to to bring 
her up um, because she did so much. um, And even at the end, a lot of times, you know, mostly from bed or or from her house. I I didn't know her personally, but sidebar um, have a habit of reading obituaries um, because people are fascinating. And so um, I learned this in journalism school that you can just learn a lot from reading them. So I was reading hers and a lot of her her advocacy was around more compassion in the medical field. Um, and this kind of goes along with what, what Julie was just talking about and, and the ADA not being enforced as much. And so I just wanted to read the last two graphs. There might be a lot of people listening who are, are thinking of going into the medical field in some way. And it says, for all her mastery of the intricacies of healthcare policy, Ms. Gilmer said what the system needed most was more compassion. Quote, we can do that at the big grand levels of instituting trauma-informed care as the way to practice, she said. And we can do that at the small micro levels of just saying, how are you today? I'm here to listen. I'm glad you're here. That is lovely. Well, finally this week, as we've mentioned several times, the Supreme Court will hear a case next term about whether Mississippi can ban abortion at 15 weeks, which is well before viability and thus well before states can impose bans under the court's current precedents in Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood of Southeast Pennsylvania versus Casey. Originally, Mississippi said that the court could actually preserve its law without overturning Roe and Casey. But in its opening brief submitted to the court last week, the state's attorney general said the quiet part out loud. Quote, Roe and Casey are egregiously wrong, Attorney General Lynn Fitch wrote. Quote, the conclusion that abortion is a constitutional right has no basis in text, structure, history, or tradition. Okay, then, what does this do to what had been the Republican strategy on abortion, which was to basically regulate it? Uh, effectively out of existence without overruling Roe? Has has the strategy completely changed here? As a journalist, I appreciate their candor, which is uh, very, you know, rare these days that people actually come out and say what what they are trying to do. So, um, but, you know, I I do think it's it's interesting, um, this shift. And so I wonder if it's a political ploy related to elections. I mean, in Mississippi, of course, is a very conservative state. But if you sort of make your purpose clear? Does that energize like, you know, the sort of anti-abortion voters of your party? You know, we're a year and change away from the midterms. I mean, there might be some calculation there, you know, to really try to rile up their uh, base, you know, going into next year. But I, I think it's interesting. I, I do wonder if the others will take cues, you know, from this this Mississippi sort of argument and if we'll see more of it. Mel, we're seeing the appropriations bills in the House go through stripped of all the abortion restrictions that they've carried for generations now, basically. Um, and, you know, so we see the the other side uh, also being much more sort of, you know, we're going to we're going to do what we want to do and darn the consequences. Obviously, th- these things are not going to make it through the Senate. Uh, they're they're not the votes there to actually eliminate most of these uh, abortion restrictions. But are we sort of, I, I guess I feel like we're sort of setting up for this huge abortion conflagration come next year. We obviously would expect this Supreme Court decision sometime in late June of 2022, just months before the uh, um, the, the midterms. Is that is, is, is this sort of, are, are Democrats and Republicans playing into each other's strategies here? 
I th yeah, I think they sort of are. I think just in the same way that, you know, this Mississippi brief, you know, is kind of ginning up the Republican base. I think that this is something that a lot of people in the Democratic Party have been waiting a long time for. Obviously, this became a pretty big point at one point in the 2020 Democratic primary with the Hyde Amendment and some of the other amendments that have been in here. So, yeah, while it's not necessarily, you know, going to, you know, make it into whatever the final funding law is most likely, just with the chances of get getting that through the Senate, we'll kind of see what's going to happen with CRs and all of that in the coming weeks and months. But it's definitely a big thing for the Democrats. And I think that this is really setting up both sides to make this a bigger a bigger issue in the midterms next year. It's funny, for most of the time since I've covered abortion, and I've covered abortion since the 1980s, there's been this goal by both parties to kind of grab the, the undecided middle. If you look at, at opinion polls. I mean, most of the country is in what, you know, sort of the muddled middle. They believe that uh, abortion shouldn't be banned, but they don't approve of it. And they, they support some restrictions, but not all restrictions. And it depends how you ask the question. And so Republicans for a long time, you know, sort of pretended that they didn't want to actually overturn Roe v. Wade. They just wanted to put more restrictions on it. And Democrats sort of pretended that they didn't want to get rid of bans on public funding of abortion, but they wanted to make sure that the Republican restrictions allowed, you know, women who wanted to get an abortion to get one. And now it seems that both sides are just playing to, to their sort of extremes. And as you say, in an effort to, to maybe gin up the base. And I'm curious to know how this is all going to play out. And, you know, I guess with more gerrymandered districts where districts are going to be either pretty really liberal or really conservative, maybe that's why they're doing it? I think it's sort of a trend that you're seeing in a lot of things that sort of focusing more on either side than really going to the middle and maybe there being the idea that there are fewer people in the middle to kind of get. But it'll be interesting to see. I think that there's definitely been in the recent past and then kind of moving forward, you know, sort of how the conversation and how candidates and lawmakers are sort of talking about these different things and how that changes. Oh. All right. Well, that is the news for this week. Now we will play my Bill of the Month interview with KHN Samantha Young. Then we will come back and do our extra credits. We are pleased to welcome to the podcast my KHN colleague, Samantha Young, who wrote and reported the latest KHN NPR Bill of the Month. Welcome to What the Health. Thank you for having me. So while we are all admiring the Olympic athletes right now, I think sometimes we forget that literally every one of these sports is filled with the potential for pretty serious injury, particularly at the elite level. Tell us about this month's patient and how he got hurt. This month's patient is uh, Phil Guyman. He's from California been in cycling most of his life and had actually retired from cycling back a few years ago and has been making a name for himself as a blogger, YouTuber, uh, making records, racing up mountains. And Guyman got the attention of USA Cycling coaches and, and they asked him to come out and try out for the team. He had a lot of speed and he was in one of the trials when he uh, crashed, went over his handlebars in on this track in Pennsylvania. And this was away from his home state of California. He was taken by ambulance to a hospital in Pennsylvania. And that's where he found he had a broken five ribs, his collarbone, his shoulder, and uh, had a partially collapsed lung. Yikes. He got care at two different places, right? That's correct. He was three nights in the hospital in Pennsylvania, in Allentown. 
and they treated him for his broken ribs. They gave him surgery on his collarbone, but the hospital says it wasn't ready to do uh, the shoulder surgery. And so he was in pain, he tells us, um, couldn't imagine sitting on a plane going back to California with a shoulder that he said felt like it was a collapsed taco. And so he sought out a surgeon in New York who was available and willing to do the surgery. So that's where he went. And then, as they say, the bill came. How big was it? Well, he got uh, pretty substantial bills, uh, and not just from the hospitals, but also from the physicians. What we've done is we really just, we took a look at these bills that he got from the hospitals uh, from Lehigh Valley. It was to the tune of about $151,000. Uh, yeah, pretty high. And and then he also got one about $45,000 from the hospital in New York, the Hospital for Special Surgery. And like I mentioned, that doesn't even include the other bills he got from the physicians. Now, we talk a lot about how it's important to stay in your insurance network when you get care, but obviously athletes travel for competition, and so they need to be sure they have out-of-network coverage. And he had not just one, but two insurance policies, Right. Well, that's right. He has his own, which um, a lot of us, you know, if we have through our employer, but he's a a blogger, he's an athlete. He went out and got his own insurance coverage. He got it through Cover California, the, the state insurance marketplace. And he didn't go for the bare bones cheap plan. He researched it. He got a pretty good plan, a PPO that he felt would cover him if he got in an accident like this. But what he didn't realize was that if he would be out of his state, you know, traveling, doesn't just have to be an athlete, could be any one of us if we were on vacation and and we needed to go to the hospital. He didn't get that kind of in-network care. And so therefore his costs, the bill, were a lot higher than if he had had this accident in California. How much was he being asked to cover? Well, um, (laughs) he was being asked to cover pretty much $151,000 from Lehigh Valley Hospital. I mean, that's a pretty significant chunk of money. Yeah, if, particularly if you're, you know, an athlete in a, in a sport, you know, that not known for, for paying tons of money. We've talked on this podcast a lot about surprise billing legislation. Shouldn't it have prevented these bills? Yes, um, if the law was in effect, it would have. Um, but that's one of the things that Congress has passed last year. And so, you know, if, if Phil had just waited a year or two to have this accident, then in theory, he would have been fine. Um, But unfortunately for him, this happened back in 2019 when he was trying to qualify for these Olympics. And what's the status of his, I mean, obviously he's not at the Olympics, but what's the status of his bills? This seems like an Olympic event of its own. That it does. And those bills are still outstanding. Uh, The Hospital for Special Surgery, they have put his bill on hold uh, after we made some inquiries and they sent him a financial assistance form and they say they're working with him and they hope to come, you know, have a good resolution for him. Meanwhile, the hospital in Allentown, Lehigh Valley, they are still, they declined to comment on what his balance was or, you know, whether or not they're going to be working with him. But they did say, you know, he's an out-of-network patient and they're not responsible for his bill and they don't need to negotiate with his insurance provider because they're not in their network. Wow. So somebody on Twitter the other day said, what's not an Olympic sport, but should be. And someone responded, choosing a health insurance plan. Um, I think that probably applies in this situation. So what is the takeaway here other than don't get hurt until next year when the federal surprise bill law takes effect? 
That's a great question. I think if you're going to be traveling out of state, you really should know what your plan does and doesn't cover. If you do get one of these bills, don't pay it right away. Really just take the time to call your insurance plan, call the hospital, try to negotiate these prices. Ask if they have a financial assistance program or some charity care, um, because oftentimes these are bills that most people just can't afford. They don't have this money sitting in the bank. Samantha Young, thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, we are back. And before we do our extra credits, I have a quick correction. Last week in our COVID discussion, one of our panelists talked about a healthcare practitioner in Alabama who was asked by a patient about to be intubated due to COVID if they could get the vaccine, and she told the patient it was too late. We called that practitioner a nurse. In fact, it was a doctor. Her name is Brittany Cobia. Our apologies. Okay, now it's time for our extra credit segment where we recommend a story we read this week we think you should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the list on the podcast page at khn.org. Anna, you've already done yours. Roshna, why don't you go next? So my story is out of uh, Tennessee, which has been quite the hotbed of anti-vaccine efforts uh, lately. So to backtrack, so I guess the story this week is about how the Tennessee Department of Health is going to resume most forms of vaccine outreach, including for the COVID vaccine and including uh, for efforts directed at children. Previously, what the department had done was strip its logo off of vaccine information, public information that it was putting out, encouraging individuals to get vaccinated amid pressure from Republican lawmakers in that state. That was exclusive reporting by the Tennessean. And this week, uh, it appears that halt is going to be uh, reversed, according to the state's top health officials. So perhaps things are, are turning around in Tennessee. So we'll have to see what happens from here on out. Okay, Mel. Yeah, my story this week is out of the Olympics, which I have spent a lot of my week watching, particularly, you know, women's gymnastics and Simone Biles pulling out of the women's team all around and then individual all around this morning. And I just think what's really interesting is how much the Olympics and elite sports in general are looking at mental health, which has obviously been such a big topic for everyone, but particularly in the elite sporting world. The Olympics, the IOC has, you know, psychologists and psychiatrists on site to, you know, talk to and work with athletes that are there. They have a hotline that athletes can call and talk to as they're kind of dealing with you know, not just the pressures of performing, but also everything with the pandemic, not having their families and their friends and fans there, I think is really interesting, sort of, you know, the extra effort that they're putting on this and really hoping and think, thinking, you know, we have done enough, we, we really hope it's enough. Um, and sort of just a spotlight on how Simone's choices highlight sort of how mental health and physical health are intertwined. So my story actually builds on Mel's. It's a documentary on HBO called The Weight of Gold. It was executive produced by Michael Phelps, who's been quite open about his own mental health challenges, including at this Olympics, where he's acting as a commentator. Uh, The documentary explores in real depth just what the quest for Olympic glory does to the psyches of these elite athletes. I found it really eye-opening and incredibly well done. If you don't subscribe to HBO, it's available for streaming on a number of different platforms, and I cannot recommend recommend it highly enough. So that is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Special thanks, as always, to our ace producer, Francis Ying, who still manages to make us all sound good. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at jrovner. Mel? At Mel McIntyre. Roshna? At Rochina Dixit. Anna? At Anna Edney. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. <laughs> <laughs>